Jonah chapter 1, verse 7. And they, the sailors, said every one to his fellow, Come, and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then said they unto him, Tell us, we pray thee, for whose cause this evil is upon us? What is thine occupation, and whence comest thou? What is thy country, and of what people art thou? And he said unto them, I am an Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Then were the men exceedingly afraid, and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. So friends, we're continuing our studies in this uh, wonderful book of Jonah. We're not rushing through it. We're just going through it at a shorter pace, a slower pace, so that we can gather much from it. And well, I have to say myself, I didn't realize there was so much in it as I began to study it. And really, it's such a wonderful book with so many lessons for New Testament believers as well, as we've found out. And tonight, or this morning rather, my subject is Sin Found Out. Sin Found Out. And that's obvious from those, from those verses that you can see. You can probably see where I'm going. Well, Jonah's sin is now going to be found out. He's been hiding it. He's been concealing it in his breast. He's been running from the Lord, running from that commission, running as far as he can from that commission in the opposite direction. And now God is, has begun to bring him back. God has begun uh, to bring his disobedient servant to repentance and to confession of his sin before he recommissions him and sends him uh, to Nineveh again. But Jonah is acting like an unbeliever. Jonah is acting as if he is a non-Christian. He's running from the Lord. That's what, that's what unbelievers do. He's refusing to repent. That's what unbelievers do. He's refusing to confess that he is a sinner and that he needs forgiveness. He refuses to acknowledge. He keeps the sin. His conscience is telling him again and again, repeatedly, confess, Jonah, confess, Jonah, go back to God. But he doesn't do it. That's what unbelievers do, isn't it? That's what friends do who are still outside of Christ. A persistent refusal to acknowledge their sins and to turn to Christ and to give their life over to Him. A suppression of a guilty conscience. Just go through life. I'll live with it. I'll live with it. I'll live with it. It'll get better. It'll get better. It doesn't get better. It only relief only comes when confession is made to God. Lord, I'm a sinner. Have mercy upon me. Take away my sin. Forgive me for Jesus Christ's sake. Then relief comes. Then peace comes. Then forgiveness comes. Oh, friends, that's when we really begin to live life uh, as we ought. So Jonah here is acting in this way. The Lord uh, sent out that storm. The Lord wouldn't, in His kindness, allow this prophet, uh, this wayward prophet, to go his own way. He sends out this uh, storm, this violent storm, to bring him back. A storm so tempestuous that the, the ship is almost broken to pieces. 
and uh, he, is, he is on the verge of losing his life, and all the people on board are on, on the verge of losing their lives. Everyone, all the sailors on that ship were doing their very best, running backwards and forwards to try and save the ship. But only one man, as we saw last week, was doing nothing. Only one man was fast asleep below deck. And that man was the one who should have been the most alert, the most alive. That man was Jonah, fast asleep below deck, until he was aroused and awakened from his sleep by that heathen captain. What meanest thou, O sleeper? Arise, call upon thy God. Well, we looked at these things, those things last week, and we pick it up, up the narrative here in verse 7. They said, every one to his fellow, come and let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this evil is come upon us. We are still with the ship. We are still with its sailors. We're still with Jonah. We're still observing them. We're observing them from a distance, from a safe distance. We're on dry land, as it were, and we can see them there toiling on the, on, the, on, the, on the ship in the midst of a storm. The storm is still raging and ravaging that boat. The danger is not past. What are they going to do next? What is the next option for them? Well, here we read that they cast lots. They're going to cast lots to see uh, why the evil has come upon them. They've tried a religious way the sailors earlier had prayed to their gods to stop the storm. Nothing had happened. It was ineffective. Their prayers didn't reach very far. The storm still raged. The, the ship still was tossed to and fro. Then they tried a natural way. They said, let's cast overboard all the cargo. Let's throw, throw off all those things that we have bought for trade, all the possessions. Still, that didn't have any effect. Still, they are in deep trouble. So they turn now to another way. They turn to a superstitious way, we could say, of casting lots. Let's throw lots, they say, and find out who is the one who is behind this. There must be somebody on board who is the cause of this storm. We've been through storms before, the sailors said to one another, but we've never been through anything like this. We've never experienced a storm so, uh, so dreadful as this one that's rocked our boat so much and has endangered our lives to this degree. There must be a cause. There must be somebody who is a criminal above every other kind of criminal, a wicked man amongst us, who has brought us into such danger and such trouble. Let's cast lots to find out uh, who it is. And they were sure that this means, this means would find out the criminal. They were so sure that by casting lots, it would reveal and detect uh, who is the one who is behind it. They were so certain about it. But look, friends, they cast lots that we may know for whose cause this evil is upon us. They made a connection between the storm and all that they were going through uh, here on earth with, with God. They said there must be, must be a cause, there must be a reason behind it. On the one hand, we're going through all the, uh, these things, but on the other hand, 
It must be something that God has sent. They, they established a link between what was happening on earth and heaven. They established a connection between the two. And they didn't know the true God. They were idol worshippers. Only Jonah is the true believer among them. But they felt that what was happening to them in life on that boat was something that was God sent. Something that came from His hand. Well, it's a natural connection to make, isn't it? It's very, it's very natural for, for people to think that way and something terrible and something awful happens to them. People sort of have an intuitive, intuitive sort of kind of feeling that this is, must be God, must be angry with me. I must have done something to displease Him, to go through such a terrible situation as I am. Certainly in the past, people felt like that. Certainly in the past, people often made this link and connection. People still today do it. They want, if a disaster occurs, they thought of it as a judgment from the living God. The Lord Jesus also made such a connection which we, re we read of in, in Luke chapter 13 when He talked about the, the Tower of Siloam and 18 people lost their lives. And the Lord said to the, the Jews who were there listening to Him, don't think that those people who died were sinners above all men in Jerusalem. They were, there was a, it was a judgment on them. But the Lord said, learn from that. Don't think that you're better than that which happened to them. Well, friends, disasters. There was a link. When you look at the greatest disaster ever, do you know what is the greatest disaster that's ever, natural disaster ever happened in this world? The flood. The flood. The flood that wiped away the whole world as it was then in Noah's time. And only eight people in the world were saved. Why did it happen? Is there a link? Is it a natural event that just happened as evolutionists tell us? Or is there a connection with God? Is there a cause? Yes, there is a cause. The Bible makes it clear there is a cause. Because the wickedness of man, the imaginations of his heart, were evil and evil only continually, God said. So the flood came and wiped away the whole world except for eight people. There's a connection. That's the way people often thought. Maybe that's the way you still think. But sadly, there was uh, in the mid-19th mid, uh, century, 1859, something came in to dislodge this way of thinking in people's minds, especially in, in Western minds. There's a way of a theory came in to make people break that connection between troubles which are happening in this world and disasters and something, a connection with God in heaven. Some uh, theory which has done tremendous harm actually to us spiritually and which still infects many people's minds and affects their way of thinking and their outlook on life and their judgments about what happens around them. Well, we're talking about the theory of evolution which came in in 1859 with Charles Darwin and his book, The Origin of Species. And he set in motion a train of thought to explain, well, man is, has no creator. 
Man's existence can be naturally explained. Man has come from just a bunch of chemicals, that's all he is, and he's evolved over millions and millions of years to be the complex, reasonable, emotional person that he is today. It can all be explained, he said, by a natural process. We don't need God. Sideline him, put him out of the picture. We, we can understand for ourselves. We can work, we've worked it all out for ourselves. This is how we came about. It was a natural way of explaining our existence. And that's developed further, that kind of naturalistic, we can reason things out by ourselves. That, has, that way of thinking has seeped itself into other areas of our life. So that we can now say, oh, everything can be rationally explained. Death can be rationally explained. And so on and so on. Everything can be rationally explained. So that today, friends, if an earthquake or tsunami happens, an earthquake as we've seen even this week, well, we are given just the natural explanations of it. We are just told, oh, the movement of the tectonic plates, oh, there was a, a movement along the fault lines and, and such and such, and, and that's, what, that's what happened, that's the cause of the earthquake. We can say what happened, and why it happened in a natural way, but what's the cause of it? People are not asking that question. What's the cause of it? What's the cause of all the disasters that happen in the world? Well, friends, what's the, is there a link between such disasters that happen in this world? Are they really judgments from God? Is there a link between heaven and this catastrophe, those are really questions we should be asking. But friends, the Bible does teach us that disasters really are a warning from God. They are a warning from God. Now, we, 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 we say these things uh, against the backdrop of what's just happened to us, or happened rather in Turkey and Syria, and we are sad to see, and we are we feel so much for those uh, who, uh, who have lost their lives and have lost homes and lost family members. We feel already it's from a distance, but we have some compassion for them who cannot have compassion, who can be human and not feel for those who have perished or those who, have, who are now without food and clothing and shelter and medication and so many other things. We feel for those people and we desire to be of some help to them in some way. Yet we have to say, friends, that there is a connection between earthquakes and heaven. It's a warning from God. It's not, a, it's not, that, it's not God saying that th those people in that particular area are sinners above above others, that they're worse than other people, that's why an earthquake happened. No. I don't know why God sent an earthquake to that particular place. But we know that He sends as a warning to all the earth that we are all sinners, that we all deserve judgment, that we all should come under His condemnation. None of us can say, I'm innocent, I don't deserve such things. Disasters, friends, are a very vivid way of God calling people to 
to think about your soul. It's his way of calling people to repentance and to, to know this will be our end if we do not also turn to him. Oh, friends, but atheism, humanism, it, it comes in and it denies there is any connection. It's all just natural. It's nothing to it. You don't need to bring God into the equation here. Leave him out. Just work things out in a natural, reasonable kind of way. Oh, even you may have seen some of the, the reports that have come out from these areas. And there was uh, even one man who, who still had this connection, it seems. And in the midst, it lost so all his members of his family except for one little girl. And you may have seen the pictures, and he's telling his girl how much he loves her and how much he'll be, always be there for her. And in the midst of saying all these things to her, he also says, this is God's will. And he's not even a believer. And he said those words. He's made a connection. Well, friends, uh, we say these things uh, just so that we can think uh, about uh, these things. The, these sailors uh, knew that there was a cause. Why? Whose cause is this evil come upon us? Verse 7 continues. Come, they said, let us cast lots. They huddled together and cast lots that we may know for whose cause. Somebody must be to blame. No one of them, you notice, said, is it me? They all looked at each other and said, is it him? Is it him? Maybe it's him. No one said, is it me? Is it me, Lord? Am I the one who is the cause of the, all this, uh, this trouble? Oh, I'm sure each one of them uh, they, they thought about their guilt. I'm sure none of these sailors would have proclaimed purity and innocence completely. They would, uh, they would admit to being guilty of minor crimes, of trivial things, trivial offenses, but I have not done anything on a grand scale, they could have said. Nothing that deserves this kind of a storm to happen to us. None of them searched their consciences in this way. Oh, friends, again, there's a very crucial, important lesson for us here, and it's this. Just as these sailors were, would willingly admit that they were sinners, but they, at the same time, resented if anyone said to them, you're a great sinner, so also it is with us. We are willing to admit that we are sinners. I'm sure none of us would say we are innocent and have no sin, but there are few who admit that they are great sinners, sinners who deserve God's judgment, sinners who we readily uh, admit that we are imperfect, we have our, a bunch of peccadilloes to deal with, we have oh, some indiscretions, we have minor faults though, there's nothing serious, there's nothing major we think about ourselves, and there's a lot of good mixed in there in our hearts. I have a good heart, really. You heard that one before? We don't mind admitting to some faults, and so we don't mind admit, accepting even some minor punishments. Or I can accept if a strong wind blows a ship in one way, but not a tempest. I'm not the cause of a tempest. I can do if a flat tire happens to me. 
Okay? I can manage these ordinary difficulties in life. If I get an, a bill, an unexpectedly high bill, oh, I won't be very happy, but okay, I can live with that. If I have high BP, well, that's not going to be very nice, but yeah, I can manage that. Okay, I can take this kind of punishment, minor punishment. But I don't deserve God's wrath. I don't deserve eternal punishment. I don't deserve to go to hell forever. I'm not that bad. I'm not so evil to that extent. My sins don't deserve such a punishment. I'm no Hitler. I'm no serial killer. I'm not a pedophile. My hands are free from those such things. I'm clean in those areas. I'm not so guilty before God. Friends, we think like this because we have such a low view of the holiness of God. We think like this because sin to us is small, really. We only see sin in those terms of uh, serial killers and pedophiles as big things and hitlers. But we fail to see how offensive sin is to a holy, holy God. How offensive it is to Him. How much He hates sin. That one sin is enough to punish, uh, for Him to punish a person to eternity. It's an offense. It's who we offend. It's who we are offending. If you offend a person on the street, if you slap a person on the street, that's one thing. You slap the king of England, that's another. You can't say anything against the king of England now, it seems. You sin against God. You offend God. It's the most grievous thing in the world, friends. The sentence is too lenient. That's too lenient, people say. When, just recently, isn't it? We had somebody sentenced for terrible crimes against women. Multiple crimes. And he only got 30 years for it. Minimum 30 years. And everyone was in uproar. Everyone complained to the Crown Prosecution Service. He should have more. This is not right. The judge has been too lenient on him. Yes, it's true. But for us... Is it too lenient? Do we say, it's too, it's too much, Lord. Eternal punishment? No, I don't deserve that. Oh, friends, it's only when we come to the realization and the admission before God, Lord, my sins are terrible. My life has been evil. I deserve severe punishment. I deserve eternal punishment. I deserve to go to hell forever. If you now would cast me into hell, you would be righteous to do so. I would find no fault at all with, with you. You'd, if you did that to me even now as an unbeliever. Friends, when you reach that point, you're on the verge of being saved. You're on the verge of 
coming to know God's free grace and forgiveness. Because it's when you come to that point that you can admit, this is really what I am. This is what I deserve. Then God comes in His gracious and way and offers you the forgiveness, free forgiveness, forgiveness without any merit. Yes, Lord, yes, I don't deserve it. But the Lord says, I offer you free salvation. I offer you eternal life. I offer you heaven. He gives these things to us when we reach that point. Oh, friends, what a wonderful thing it is it's, uh, to come and realize uh, these things. But without it, if we resist it and say, no, that's not me. I'm still innocent. I don't deserve such a power. Oh, we will never, probably never know salvation. Never come to the Lord. Because we don't want to admit what we truly deserve. We sang it, didn't it? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saves such a lovely person like me. Oh, sorry, I misquoted. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. <laughs> You're going too far, Pastor. A wretch. No, 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 tone it down a bit. We're not wretches. Wretch. He was a wretch who wrote that, John Newton. And so am I. And so are you. But there's amazing grace if we turn uh, to him. I must go on. Look at verse 7. Still we're in verse 7. Uh, so they cast lots uh, to find the guilty person. To find who is this foul criminal? Who is concealing his crime? Who is running from justice? They cast lots and the lot fell upon Jonah. Jonah's name is picked out of the bag. Jonah is found out. Jonah's sin is found out. And God made use of these lots to point the finger at Jonah. Now, lots is not really a method we should be using as Christians. It's not something if we are trying to find out the will of God for our lives and we're not sure what to do, well, we should pray. We should come with an open mind before God. We should weigh up the, the pros and the cons of the, of the, of, of the uh, things bef before us. And we should seek God's mind and wait until He makes it plain and clear to us. We shouldn't toss a coin. We shouldn't throw lots to find out what is God's will. But nevertheless, He used uh, lot, the, uh, the casting of lots in this case. And He overruled it to point the finger at Jonah. Can you see Jonah? His face must have been horrified when his name came out of the bag. Thou art the man, Jonah. And God used this means to bring his servant to repentance. He used the storm and now that great way and now this minor way of the, of the lots uh, to, uh, to bring him to his senses. Jonah thought he could go undetected on that journey and make his way to Tarshish without ever being found out. He thought he could stay under the radar and not be detected, but now he is brought out into the open. Now he is exposed and all eyes are upon him. What have you done, they say to him. What have you done? Tell us. And Jonah could have been prevented this shameful expose this public expose that he had, he could have been spared it. If only he had confessed earlier, before he left his hometown, if he'd confessed to God in secret, if he had, before he boarded that ship, he had confessed to God, he got on his knees and repented, it, would have been, it wouldn't have become public knowledge. 
nobody else would have known about it. He would have gone back and he would have taken up his commission again. And maybe we wouldn't have the record as we have today. But he didn't. And so it became public uh, knowledge. And then verse 8, he is interrogated by the sailors. Question after question comes his way. And each time, what does he do? He doesn't do as many people do today, many criminals, I should say. What is thy occupation? No comment. Whence comest thou? No comment. What is thy country? No comment. What people art thou? No comment. That's what people do, isn't it? They don't want to reveal their true colors, what they've really done. But to Jonah's credit, he actually comes out and admits in a very honest way before these sailors what he has done. And in doing so, he's also admitting his sin against God. Oh, it doesn't come through in verse 9 so clearly. In verse 9, he said to them, I am an Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. Well, you look at that and you think, well, that's no confession there. But then you look at the next verse, verse 10, and the latter part, for the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. He confessed to them. He told them everything. He come clean with them and said, this is what i am done. I'm running from the presence of the Lord. I'm running from His commission. I'm running from Him. And that's why the storm has come upon us. And his, his confession is a very open one. He could have denied it. He could have said, it's not me. You have no witnesses. How do you know it's me? It's nothing to do with me. The, the Lord's got it all wrong. No excuses. He just uh, uh, comes out and admits uh, his guilt uh, in this matter. Here is a believer, friends, finally confessing his sin, honestly confessing his sin, his sin against God's love and kindness. Look at it very briefly. Uh, verse 9, I am in Hebrew. <laughs> well, how does that... How does that relate to his confession? Well, as a Hebrew, he was entitled to so many privileges. He was entitled to so many blessings which other nations didn't have. God had attached himself specifically to the Hebrew people above other nations. God had given to them alone his law, the Ten Commandments. They had his presence. Other nations did not. He was with them. He protected them from their enemies. He delivered them. He gave them their own land. He did wonderful things for them. They, Jonah himself had access to him. Jonah was his prophet involved in his work. Jonah was close to him. Jonah was hearing from God. All these privileges were his. And he should say, by saying, I am a Hebrew, he's saying, I am all the more blameworthy. I'm all the more culpable for my crime for my desertion of the Lord because of my privileges that, that preceded it. And he extenuate, he doesn't extenuate, uh, uh, excuse, make excuses for his sins. Friends, this is how a repenting believer confesses his sin. He doesn't say, oh Lord, but I, I'm sorry I did that, but you know, this has happened, that happened. You know, Lord, the Lord has, how could I do such a, a terrible thing? The Lord has set His love upon me. The Lord has saved me. The Lord has brought me out of darkness and given me eternal life. The Lord has given me heaven. 
The Lord has given me spiritual life. Once I was dead in sins, once I had no access to God, once my prayers went only as high as the ceiling, now they reach to His presence and He helps me day by day. And I've got so many, a record of so many things that God has done in my life. And yet I still went and did that terrible thing. Yet I still went and backslid from the Lord. Yet I still did such a horrible sin I fell into. And he, he beats his conscience, he beats himself as it were, not physically. But he doesn't make excuses. He, his, he compounds uh, his guilt. How could I, a Christian, after knowing all that I know, having experienced all that I have, do such things. And he went on to say, And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, which hath made the sea and the dry land. I, I worship, he could say. It's a way of saying, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven. This is my occupation. I worship the Lord God of heaven. The God of heaven and the one who has made the sea and the dry land. Not a God, as these sailors thought, of just one part of the land. That's how they used to think. Every different land had their own God. Jonah says he's the God of the heaven and the earth. The whole earth is his. The one who made the sea and the one who controls the sea and the one who has sent this raging storm that is before us. I fear him. I worship him. Is Jonah witnessing here? Witnessing in an indirect manner to these people. Maybe not deliberately so. Nevertheless, these sailors are hearing for once in their life about the true God and His attributes. That He is their, their Creator. That He is the Governor of the earth. That He is the all-powerful, sovereign God. Just in these few words, they're receiving a testimony from His, his mouth. Have you heard of Him, friends? Have you heard of God? You know Him? You know His attributes? You know the true God, who He is? But just notice a couple of things just before we come to a close. Notice very briefly that though Jonah is confessing these things, though now he has come out into the open, yet it's a contradiction with the way he's been living his life. Here he is, I am a Hebrew, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, but he's running from the Lord. How can it be? How can it be, Jonah, you're saying one thing, but you're doing another. Your profession is one thing, but your actions speak louder than your profession. It's saying a different thing. There's a mismatch, Jonah, between your words and your actions. Oh, friends, is that me? Is that me? I am a Christian, I tell everyone. I tell everyone at work, I'm a Christian. I worship the Lord. I believe in the Lord. I follow Jesus Christ. But in practice, it's not so. In practice, I'm living at a distance from Christ. In practice, I've backslidden from Christ. Contradictions. And finally, verse 10, a rebuke from the sailors, isn't it? The men were exceedingly afraid and said unto him, Why hast thou done this? Why have you fled from the Lord? But look at this one final thought, friends. And that's, they were ex exceedingly afraid. Verse 5, 
When the storm first came upon them and the ship was likely to be broken, the mariners were afraid, but now they are exceedingly afraid. Why? Why so much more afraid? Because now they know this is no ordinary storm indeed. Now they know that there's a moral element truly to this storm. Now they know that God is behind this storm. And God has sent it because he's angry. And so here is a token of his anger. And so they are exceedingly afraid. Well, friends, we must close here. And we'll pick it up, God willing, uh, next week. But here are the steps that God has taken to bring Jonah to confess his sin. Oh, it doesn't have to be so with us if we come readily even now. But this is what God desires for us. Whether we're believer or unbeliever, hide no sin in our hearts. I close just with 1 John, verse one, chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Christ he will forgive us. The moment you admit your sin, the moment you confess it, He will pardon you. He will restore you. If you've gone away from the Lord, admit it, friends, and come back. He will forgive you and He will bring you back again to Himself. It's just, you still live in a time of grace. You still live in a time when you may be forgiven. Come to Him if you haven't come. If you haven't never ever confessed your sin to this holy God, come and make those admissions to Him. Come and tell Him what you truly deserve and He will forgive you immediately. He will forgive you because Christ is a wonderful Savior. Well, friends, let's close by singing our final hymn, number 522. When any turn from Zion's way, 522.